Welcome, everyone, to the Wednesday edition of the Markets and Mortgages podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Crawley, and I apologize for the absence. I don't really have a good excuse, or at least I don't think it's that good of an excuse. I'll tell you the story, and you can decide if it's a good excuse or not. It really isn't. So Friday, no excuse for not having a show. Life just kind of got in the way. But over the weekend, I said I might not be able to do a show on Monday because I was going down or I was going out of town to celebrate my 40th birthday. So I turned 40 October 29th, end of October. And for those that don't know, I have the same birthday as my mom. So I usually spend the birthday with my mom. That makes sense. That's what you're supposed to do because it's her birthday as well. And so I decided, well, I'll just stay with my parents for the weekend. So the next weekend, friends decided, hey, let's do something the next weekend. So we go out of town. we got this great plan. So we're here in Wilmington, North Carolina. We're like, let's go down to South Carolina. They have a gambling boat. We can go on the gambling boat one night, and then the next day we can play golf. We can make a weekend of it. It's going to be a great time, right? Sounds great. 40th birthday. That's what you're going to do. Well, (laughs) for those that don't know, the weather was absolutely insane. It was supposed to rain for like 48 hours straight down there in Little River, South Carolina. So we're like, all right, we can't play golf, but at least we can go gamble. And then the wind was so crazy, they canceled the gambling boat for the entire weekend. <laughs> so there was there was no gambling and there was no golf. The two Gs, they're gone. They don't exist. And what's even funnier is like one of the nights we tried to go out to dinner And I won't get into the whole story and bore you, but that also failed. So it was like everything I was supposed to do for my 40th birthday weekend. I'll tell you, life is really not preparing me for the next stage of my life. It's like it really just sort of like kicked me in the nuts (laughs) to start my 40s. It was like, you want to do this? You can't do any of it. I guess that's what kind of like being 40 is, right? Like you want to just you want to do stuff, but you can't. You're like tired or. You have family obligations. I don't have either of those. Um, but still, I wasn't allowed to do that. So I just, I I didn't get a show done. <laughs> I was exhausted from doing nothing. I don't know. I guess that's the way to kind of look at it. So here we are. It is the Wednesday edition of the Markets in Mortgages podcast. Let's take a look at what's happening in housing, or I should say the mortgage biz. So we got some data on Monday from Black Knight looking at rate locks which I think are the most important measure of what is happening in the mortgage industry. Because obviously originations is the biggest number, but if you want to know what's going to be happening, rate locks is the best to look at more so than demand for applications because rate locks usually mean you're, you're further along in the process. And not surprisingly down in October, rate lock volume was down 5.9% led by a huge drop in rate slash term refis dropped 23.3% month over month. It is now down 62.5% year over year. I mean, and that makes sense, right? I mean, people that are refining for mostly for rates and they say, of course, term refinancing, usually when rates rise, that's gone. I mean, it's just, it's there's no benefit to refi. I mean, sure, there are people out there. There's actually a lot of people that would benefit, but the people that weren't paying attention when rates were at like 2.7 are still not paying attention. (laughs) Like if you have like a 5% rate or a 6% rate or whatever it is, and you saw that rates are up to 2.7 and didn't want to refi, 
You're not going to be like, ooh, 3.2. Now I'm going to go ahead and refi. So that's why you're seeing that big precipitous drop with rate term refinancing. Cash out refis. And this I actually look at it as a good thing because that's what, of course, led to the subprime crash. Everyone running to cash out refi. Now, obviously, you can't do the same cash outs that we saw then with 100% financing. It's not happening, but that was slightly down month over month, a 0.3% drop and purchases. Well, they were actually in positive territory in October with 0.4% growth when compared to September's data. Now, the drop in refis now mean that refinance share of the market has dropped to 45% of all lock volume, meaning purchases are at 55%. That's the lowest level for refis since June, and more than likely that number is gonna continue to decline. Now the average credit score fell, but I mean, barely. It fell 1.2, 7.30, and conforming loans also dropped 1.2 to 7.45. Government loans, interestingly enough, also fell 1 point. FHA is down to 6.62, and the average VA score down to 7.09. Mortgage rates, of course, the exact opposite, raising, or I should say rising in the month of October, up four basis points from September to 3.2%. Scott Hat, Black Knight, Secondary Marketing Technologies president said the refinance market is clearly changing, saying, quote, the dynamics of the refinance market are changing with a sharp shift away from rate term refis to cash out lending even though it was down. The shift tends to happen in any rate-rising environment, never mind one in which American mortgage holders have more than $9 trillion in tappable equity available to them. While we did see cash-outs uh, locks tick down in October, the overall trend toward an equity-centric refi market remains strong and one will or one we will continue to watch closely in the coming months. So... All in all, things still look pretty strong. Rate locks, you expect them to drop with rates moving up, but purchases are up and we haven't seen a huge decline in credit scores, meaning we're still lending money to strong borrowers. And that's what you want to see. Everyone that's so afraid of a housing market collapse. As long as money is still being lent to strong borrowers, you got to feel pretty good. No doubt about that. Now, one thing you're probably not feeling too great about, inflation. Oh, I know. Today, we're going to be getting the CPI data at 8.30. But yesterday, we got the producer price index, and it wasn't good. It was not good. This, of course, released from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Month over month, the producer price index rose 0.6%. And even if you exclude food and energy, you're still looking at a month-over-month 0.4% jump. Prices for final demand in goods and services jumped a whopping 8.6% year-over-year. That tied a record that was set in September. So no transitory, nothing. We're not giving any sign that this inflation that we are seeing is transitory. Now, obviously, the producer price index doesn't give us the true measure of inflation, because it looks at the production inputs, not consumption. However, as we all know, production costs translate to consumer prices, and that's why economists are projecting today a jump 
of 0.6% month over month and a year over year gain of 5.9%. That, of course, is the consumer price index. And if it does reach that, that would be the biggest year over year gain since December 1990. 1990. Think about what was going on in 1990. We had like Nirvana. We had uh, a lot of weird stuff. <laughs> it's like I was only nine in 1990, so I don't remember it that well. What was the big movie in 1990? Let's look this up. All right, the biggest hit of 1990, at least according to my Google search, was Ghost. Ghost was number one. Pretty Woman number two. Home Alone number three, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles the movie. That's important to note. The TV should be kind of weird. Uh, was it number four? There you go. And you know what's weird? So I just mentioned like Nirvana. Like that's what I think about. You think about like early 90s, you think about Nirvana. Um, Wilson Phillips, Hold On, was the number one song in 1990. And then Rock said It Must Have Been Love was number two. Nothing Compares to You, Sinead O'Connor, number three. And uh, Poison by Belle DeVoe. Belle Beeve DeVoe. I don't know if I know that song. Um, was number four. So that's what was happening the last time we saw prices jumping 5.9%. So it's been a while. That's all I'm saying. It has been a while. Now, you know what's interesting? And this was this was a stat that I, I always used to throw out at people because, as you guys all know, I was in talk radio. And when you're in talk radio, of course, the, the, the godfather, as Neil Borch used to call him, of course, Rush Limbaugh is who I'm talking about. And, of course, he passed away in February of this year. But he had the number one radio show. I think within maybe two years. So like in 1990, he probably had the top nationally syndicated radio show in the country. And he still was the number one radio show uh, upon his death. So like he was for like 30 years, he just owned the radio airwaves. And no matter what you think about him, love him, hate him, whatever it was, that is an impressive step. I mean, you look at everything else and think about how much has changed. And yet he was number one that whole time. <laughs> it's just, it's crazy to think about. And now here we are where we live in the nineties with uh, this type of inflation. So we'll, we'll, we'll definitely talk about the numbers on tomorrow's podcast. Now it is important to remember that consumers do not expect this inflation, this current level of inflation to dissipate anytime soon. Heads of household survey by the New York fed expect consumer prices to rise by a median of 5.7% over the next year. So right now we're seeing levels that we haven't seen in 30 years and consumers are like, yeah, we think this is going to continue. So I I don't know. I mean, I I don't know if that's good or bad for people currently in elected office. If people are expecting this to continue, and it does, I guess maybe it's not so bad. (laughs) And then if it doesn't, oh, wow, you look like a hero. So uh, we'll see how that impacts the political world. Now, before we go, there was a very interesting piece in the Wall Street Journal recently. Will Parker at the Wall Street Journal says that single family homes built to rent are emerging as the hottest corner of the U.S. property market. I would argue who needs crypto if crypto when you got real estate. Yeah, that's that's the route that you should be going. So basically what's happening you have new household formation is helping to increase demand for homes. Now, this demand is then increasing home prices, as we have seen at a record clip, which is driving more people to keep renting because now they've been priced out of the market. So even though rents are rising, they can't go buy a home. They don't qualify. They can't afford it, whatever it may be. So they have to keep renting. So demand 
is still very strong in the rental market. As anyone who's been paying attention to rent prices knows this. Now, as home prices rise, so do rents, which means home investments are offering quite a nice return. In fact, the journal reports that the expected risk-adjusted annual return for built-to-rent investments in the private market is now about 8% on average. I mean, think about it, right? You built something, it exists, rents are going up. The costs that go with maintaining, sure, they might rise a little bit, but you are seeing that that, uh, rate of return increase with regards to rentals. Now, what is this going to do? Well, this rate of return is creating quite the incentive for builders to do what they do best, which is build. The journal reports that, quote, American Homes for Rent, which owns more than 55,000 houses, built 1,600 new ones last year and expects to deliver 2,000 in 2021. Tricon Residential, a Sunbelt-focused single-family rental owner, made its debut on the New York Stock Exchange last month and has plans to buy up to 5,000 new construction rental homes directly from home builders. And this is what I love. This is the market working the way it's supposed to. So all of a sudden, this demand for houses is creating a situation where you have this demand for houses. (laughs) That makes sense. Did I just say demand for houses, increasing demand for houses? So you need houses for both to buy and to rent. And people are saying, oh, we better build more houses, which as a Yimby myself, yes, in my backyard, I 100% support all of these endeavors. That's how you deal with affordable housing. You don't do tax credits. You don't do tax increases. You don't you know, try and do rent control or make zoning more difficult or make builders have to build certain houses. For- no, no. Here's what you do. You build more houses. Supply and demand. Demand's going up. If supply doesn't go up, prices go up. But if supply surpasses... See, it's so funny because people will say, oh no, what if there is a supply glut? Oh no, you mean there's more houses than people? So you mean rents would fall and home prices would fall. So all these people that everyone's so concerned with, first-time home buyers, renters, that those prices would drop. Why it's it's so weird to watch the media report on this stuff because they like simultaneously cheer home prices going up and but then they also get worried about affordable housing. And then when prices drop, it's like, oh, this is great for the affordable, you know, people that need affordable housing, but then they oh no, the people that owned a home, their house hasn't appreciated. <laughs> it's, it's, as always, right? It's it's some good and some bad. It's a zero sum game. Home prices go up, great for homeowners, bad for people trying to buy a home. Prices go down, bad for homeowners, good for people trying to buy a home. Reality of the situation. All right, we got to go. You guys enjoy your Wednesday. I will see you back here tomorrow for another edition of Markets and Mortgages. And as always, do not wait to buy real estate. You buy real estate and wait. Wait.